think that's what brings this uh, this industry and brings CA together. Electricity is needed and drives everything that we do in our lives today. Yeah. And it's such a valuable commodity, and uh, we have great people that are dedicated and uh, spend their careers working in uh, companies across Canada to make sure the, the lights stay on everywhere and our customers are looked after. <laughs> This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. This is episode 048, number 48 of the Flux Capacitor. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. The last 30 episodes of this podcast were recorded using Zoom, but for the first time since March 2020, this podcast was recorded in person in Ottawa following our Powering Partnerships Policy Summit, the first in-person event we have held in more than 20 months. This is the second podcast featuring a conversation with Mike Marsh from SAS Power. We recorded a podcast in Washington, D.C. in 2019, episode 009, with a focus on greening the grid and Indigenous partnerships. On this episode of the Flux Capacitor, on the eve of Mike's retirement from Sask Power, we talk about the pandemic, how it's changing work and the workplace. We also discuss the challenges of GHG reductions and the role new technologies will play to help meet climate change targets. Mike also talks about his journey to his seven years as the head of Sask Power and some of his mentors along that journey. And we end with some book banter and Mike's out-of-this-world recommended addition to the Flux Capacitor Book Club. Here is my conversation with Mike, recorded in late November 2021, in person in Ottawa. So, Mike, welcome to the podcast. This has been 20 months that uh, that I haven't recorded a podcast face to face. It's awesome to actually do something face to face. It's great to great to have you live on the podcast. I, I thought maybe we'd start with that. The, the pandemic. It's 20 months into the pandemic. What's what's it been like for you know for you and uh, and for the team? What's what's the experience been? And, you know, more particularly, one of the things, and we've talked a little bit about this in the past, the impact on people and the impact on staff. This, is, this has been, uh, you know, a challenge from, you know, logistical standpoint to get things done. But this has been really hard on the people as well, hasn't it? It's been difficult for sure. You know, in the beginning, back in 2020, when uh, we got the directive, okay, everybody go home, uh, who can go home, um, we mustered up uh, all the technology we could and we had 1500 people working from home within four or five days right um i often i often say it you know uh, our if you were to ask the it departments uh, if they could do that it probably would have been several weeks but they really stood up and uh, and they got things done and you know we commend them and but you know nobody knew in the beginning yeah nobody knew what this was about mm-hmm. Uh, nobody knew uh, anything about this COVID and, and what's going to happen. So there was quite a bit of fear and concern and, and I think heightened anxiety in the workforce. But over time, uh, people began to understand what this was. We 
as a corporation that says power, we, you know, we maintained a, a very consistent approach. Yeah. And, you know, by, um, by summertime, we were starting to um, uh, get people back into the workplace because the numbers had, had come down in the okay. summer 2020 in Saskatchewan. And so people came back in the summer. By the end of summer, we had everybody back. And then in the fall last year, if you recall, uh, uh, the case count started to go up again. Yeah. So by the end of November, we were asking people to go home again. Right. So from November, end of November 2020 till summertime of 2021, we had folks working from home, the better part of the entire workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it was, people were used to it by that point. Right. We got accustomed to the technology. Some of our performance metrics actually went up, mm-hmm. and uh, we didn't we didn't lose a beat when it came to uh, dealing with some of our customer issues. Right, and I think that's similar to other utilities out there. We found that we could accommodate uh, the workforce. Um, all the transactional work got done. Uh, of course, all the people that are needed in the field stayed in the field. So right. our our crews, uh, the power plant workers, they all stayed. Uh, working and uh, you know we really want to thank them for you know all their efforts through all of this they accommodated you know different work practices masks in the workplace uh, different cleanliness procedures and they work with contractors mm-hmm. in all our work sites I think over time the anxiety began to come down and it just became well this is now how we do it right the Delta variant has thrown a little bit of a twist in it because we know that we've had uh, we've had uh, a number of people who have been vaccinated has have also become sick, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, nothing serious. And, and I would add that we did um, have over 150 cases of our workforce uh, of 3,200 contract COVID, and mm-hmm. unfortunately we had one fatality in uh, the spring of 2021. Wow! So uh, we're very sorry to. Uh, to have lost an employee and the workforce, it, it hit them hard. Yeah. But, uh, you know, all in all, I, I would say we've, we've done very well. And I think the utilities across Canada over the past year and a half compared notes. Uh, we we mm-hmm. were consistent, I think, in our practices, but it varied from region to region, of course. But I, I think it's gone very well. One, one of the things that, that we've, we've talked about over the past, well, the past, you know, 20, 21 months of the, the pandemic has been uh, the, the impact on, on mental health. And it's brought, more, I think, more focus and understanding to the, to the mental health challenges that people have, uh, have in the workforce. Was that a, a significant issue for, for SAF Power as well? Were you seeing kind of an uptick in, in mental health issues occurring? Yes, we did. And uh, we started to pay attention to that within weeks after sending people home. It yeah. became apparent that, you know, some folks expressed uh, great concern. There were some that were quite anxious. We began to make sure that our return to work um, staff uh, and our wellness department were equipped to uh, to handle questions and to help people get the help they needed. So we have a good Employee and Family Assistance Program at SAS Power, mm-hmm. and that was accessed quite considerably over the last um, year and a half. And, and it just made us more aware that there's this on top of everything else in people's lives yeah. just created an additional burden, and, and uh, we help people through it. How much do you think uh, the workplace is going gonna, is gonna to change 
permanently. We, uh, you know, we now are, are, are using different tools. That, you know, the IT is, has, has brought these additional tools to people. People are, are a lot more comfortable using these, these virtual tools. Is it, is, do you think it's going to change things over the long term, how we, how we work and how we interact? Uh, or, you know, are we, are we going to go back to where we were and, you know, and can you know, get back to where everything is face-to-face? Well, I would say we're, we're never going to go back to the way it was. Already things have changed in the workplace. Right. Uh, we are piloting a, a working from home policy right now, and mm-hmm. we have people working from home for uh, up to 40 or 50% of their work time. Right. And we've accommodated that for positions where uh, the company feels comfortable that we can make sure the productivity is there, where there's uh, good oversight on, on employees and good communication with, uh, with the supervisor. But uh, that pilot is going to run to the end of the year. And based on that, we'll make further assessments as to, okay, can we allow people to work 60 or 80% from home? Um, and uh, we'll extend that. But right now, it's, it seems to be working fine. Now, this has great benefits to companies mm-hmm. in terms of space in the, in right. the workplace. Yeah. We occupy several buildings in Regina. And if we can consolidate uh, and downsize the footprint of some some floor space, then uh, we we don't need as much, and right. you know that over time that's going to save the company and companies uh, a considerable amount of money. So mm-hmm. there's a benefit to us. I think there's a benefit to employees, and certainly uh, helps their work-life balance for many of them. Mm-hmm. And as long as we can get the work done and the customers are looked after, I think uh, that's what we need to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you said some of those decisions will be made uh, in, in the new year based upon your pilot project. Well, you're not going to be there in the new year <laughs> because you're you're uh, you're you're moving on from SAS Power. But but it occurs to me, Mike, uh, that that um, when you were on the podcast previously, I didn't ask you a question that I've been asking most people, and that's uh, I've been asking folks on the podcast about their journey. Sort of how they got to, uh, you know, where, where they are. Um, I, I make the joke, you know, I, I don't think when you were a young lad um, in the school grounds, uh, you, were, you were dreaming of becoming a, the president of SAS Power one day. Uh, no. We've known each other for, I don't know, 15 years. Um, uh, but what was your journey? What was, what was the journey that brought you to the presidency of SAS Power? It, from, the, from the schoolyard to, uh, to, uh, to that office tower on Victoria Street in Regina. You know, one of my earliest connections with SAS Power was actually when I was in university. And I, and I uh, actually, prior to going into engineering school, I worked for SAS Power at the Queen Elizabeth Power Station back in 1975. Oh, wow. And I was a project laborer. I was working with the mechanical crews and uh, working on overhauling the equipment there. And uh, it was a coal plant at the time, so we got pretty dirty. Uh, but I worked with a bunch of classmates from high school, and, and we had a good summer that year. I went back to engineering in the fall of 75 and, and uh, ended up actually going back to Queen Elizabeth uh, mm-hmm. after my third year as, uh, as an engineer, engineering assistant at the power station. Right. So it was a different type of work and uh, much more interesting. And uh, from then, you know, I completed my engineering degree. But my wife and I chose a different path and we went off to Alberta for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, worked there in uh, with the company in the construction industry, uh, transferred back to Saskatoon, 
the construction industry in the West uh, had gone through a couple cycles in the 80s and, mm-hmm. and early 90s. And, right. and at that point, uh, I decided I wanted to pursue a career change, and I started looking at companies back in Alberta. And, and uh, of course, the only one I really uh, wanted to consider was SAS Power. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be hired back in 1991 and walked into the Boundary Dam Power Station okay. in Estevan. Yeah. And uh, that's where that's where my 30-year career with SAS Power began. And, you know, for me, it was, it was just doing the work that needed to be done in the position that I had. And I, no, I never uh, thought about the president and CEO role at SAS mm-hmm. Power at the time, even then. <clears throat> I began to think at some point, gee, I, 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 I'd like to become plant manager someday of a power station. That would be a, okay. a really great uh-huh. uh, uh, career if I, could, if I could end up doing that. Well, I never did get the plant manager position role. Okay. Uh, my wife and I ended up moving into Regina after six years. Um, I started an MBA program. I was working uh, with the, the labor relations group at the time and safety and training and mm-hmm. uh, began to pursue uh, that business um, degree, kind of mid-career. And, and then I, I chose to move into finance once I completed that and took a, a bit of a detour hmm. for, uh, for most people on the technical side. But it gave me exposure to other parts of the company. And I think right. that was the biggest eye-opener for me. It, it just allowed me to see, you know, aspects of capital forecasting and planning and governance and got to deal with boards of directors and the executive. Uh, and um, I spent six years in that role doing corporate business planning, mm-hmm. capital planning, um, capital budgeting, monthly forecasting, everything, everything around the business side. Right. Uh, which which was great exposure, and then I stepped into the um, the uh, VP of transmission and mm-hmm. distribution in two thousand and seven mm-hmm. in this March first, and uh, it was wonderful. I I, uh, I spent a lot of time learning um, because it was not my uh, my area of expertise, but I, I certainly had a great team, and they uh, they helped me understand that part of the business. Moved into operations and ran. Um, all the operating side of the business in 2012 and then the opportunity came up in 2014 and I stepped into the uh, acting CEO role mm-hmm. and uh, a few months later the board asked me to consider staying on permanently and I did and uh, so between the from October 2014 until now uh, seven years in mm-hmm. the acting and, and permanent role and yep. um, very fortunate to, to just have the doors open uh, for me in my career yeah. And, uh, you know, t- I think taking advantage of other opportunities is something uh, larger corporations um, can can present to people. And I- I'm one of those that took advantage of it, and mm-hmm. I think it's really helped my mm-hmm. my uh, roundedness, if you will, on, on the business. And uh, I've been very fortunate. So yeah. this, is, uh, this is how I ended up in this position. And as I look back, it's, well, it's... It's gone fast, but it's been great. Right. One, one of the things that, that you've always been um, a strong supporter of and committed to has, has been uh, health and safety and, and you know, continuous improvement in occupational health and safety. Um, you, you've, you've been a leader uh, at, at, at CEA in that space. Has that changed since COVID-19? Um, I know we had a bit of a conversation about this yesterday, but are, did, 
did the sort of the change in workplace practices as a result of COVID-19 result in poor performance on health and safety or better performance, or did it not have an impact at all? I'm just wondering if, you know, if, if, that, if that resulted in any change in terms of how safe our workplaces are. One of the big issues that we've noticed over the years is, is the, uh, just the amount of um, uh, information and, and in some cases distraction that perhaps presents itself to our workforce. So while we, while we work hard to uh, help educate and train employees uh, everywhere in the company, you know, access to information on a personal phone, on an iPad, mm-hmm. uh, just presents more potential distraction that could have an impact on on a person's situational awareness. And and if there's any one thing uh, I think COVID did, it, it probably added another layer of stress to some families and workers out there. Right. Uh, which, um, you know, was was a cause for concern. We, we really stepped up our programs around um, understanding situational awareness, making sure everybody's head is in the game, including mine when you're out in the field and, and really paying attention to what's important so that we can all come home safe at night. So it, we, we do believe that it had an impact, just added that extra level of stress to, uh, to some individuals where, um, you know, it, it, it could have resulted in, in potential uh, injury or, or worse. Um, and I, I'm sad to report that in, in the fall of 2020, we did lose two employees to a very unfortunate accident. Mm. And uh, that one is still under investigation. And the two individuals were um, in a bucket truck and the, the bucket uh, flipped on them. And uh, unfortunately, they fell to their, fell to their deaths. And uh, that was just a tragic, tragic accident. Um, and it, and it, you know, it, it really shocked the workplace and I think woke a lot of people up. And um, of course, we always make some very constructive changes after things like that. But mm-hmm. to be able to prevent those things, help people be aware in the first place yeah. is so important. And, uh, you know, our, our teams out there continue each and every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, safety safety, something that you can never take your foot off the gas. It's... It's important that we talk about it, that we encourage great behavior and good behavior out there and um, really continue to try to make the workplace safe for everybody. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, you talk about um, the need for the need for uh, situational awareness, the need to, to, to make sure that people are, are focused and, and kind of in the moment. That sort of flies in the face of, of all of the changes that we've seen in technology over the last uh, you know decade or two, with uh, you know the rise of cell phones and iPads and 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 further and more distractions all the time, um, that that's that's got to make things just that much more difficult in in this space where people absolutely have to be in the moment because of the, the hazardous environments within which people operate. Is there anything special that 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 has been done to make sure that that we're countering all of those increasing numbers of distractions? Well, you know, when, when you look at, when you look at, you know, when I reference uh, like an iPhone or an iPad, mm-hmm. uh, we have to remember that there's lots of uh, applications that we're putting out there to, to assist our workforce. Okay, and, through and, those and, tools. And yeah. taking, you know, the burden of paperwork and all of that off of their mind as well. And so it has some 
positive benefits, but it can add uh, it can add more distraction into the workplace mm-hmm. for all of us, and uh, we just have to be mindful of that and uh, be able to discount you know some of the information flow that's coming at us so that we can pay attention to what's needed, especially when you're planning a job for the day when you're out in the field yeah. and, and you're working with a crew or you're uh, you're on the crew or you're a foreman or a supervisor or a manager. Um, be able to discard what's not important and just focus in on what is important for that particular job and make sure things are done safely. And make sure that you adapt as the job, as situations uh, unfold themselves in the workplace, it may not go exactly as per the job plan. So you mm-hmm. have to be able to adapt and you have to be able to adapt properly and, and, and do it with the full intention of keeping everybody safe and don't take shortcuts. Right. And um, that's what we try to encourage our people to think about all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things, Mike, that, that, that we spoke about um, the last last time we sat down uh, and that has changed quite significantly has been um, the, the, the discourse, the public discourse and the government discourse around greenhouse gas uh, emissions reductions. Uh, we chatted uh, a little over two years ago on the podcast, uh, and since then, uh, the government of Canada has increased its its aspirational commitments for for twenty thirty. Uh, we're we're still um, um, you know uh, committed to a net zero twenty fifty for the economy as a whole. Um, and then the other new spin on this is um, a commitment to to have a net zero electricity grid by 2035 so that wasn't something that was that was discussed a, a number of years ago um, we talked uh, over the last couple of days here in our meetings about you know that that challenge presents itself differently depending upon where you are in the country uh, and what resources are available but it is still a significant challenge wherever you may be um, any any reflections on what what this um, may mean for for Saskatchewan I because I know even the, some of the previous commitments that have been made were going to be a stretch uh, in the short to medium term. And any sense of how much these these uh, more more aggressive targets are, are going to are going to potentially impact things? Well, first of all, you know I think we all accept the the impact that climate change is having on the planet and and certainly on the economies of, uh, of every country in the world, uh, we're no different. But we have to remember that every region of the world was able to develop their economy based on their local geography mm-hmm. and what resources they were blessed with, if you will. Um, and in fortunate, fortunately, in Western Canada for the past number of decades, oil, gas, coal mm-hmm. have all allowed the economies to grow and to flourish. Well, that has to change now. Yeah. But the, the, the speed at which some of these regulations have been impacting uh, the economy and certainly our sector, uh, the desire to electrify other sectors of the economy right. in an effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions there as well means that uh, we, we have to do an about-face and uh, we have to change the mix that we have traditionally used in Western Canada. So I'll use Alberta and Saskatchewan as an example here. Mm-hmm. Uh, predominantly coal, um, moving into gas, we're still, both Alberta and Saskatchewan are 70, 75% uh, 
uh, fossil energy today, but uh, we're, we're moving the dial. We've been adding renewables in Saskatchewan. We're going to continue to add more. We, uh, the transition to natural gas fire generation as we retire our coal fleet is also allowing emissions to come down. But that was based on information that we knew was developing over a decade ago mm-hmm. under the under the Harper government, and uh, you know we 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 began by building a, the first integrated carbon capture plant in the world, in, right. and in an effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from our coal fleet. Uh, that plant continues to operate today and pulls off six hundred thousand tons of CO two a year. However. Um, not too long after um, after that plant was open, regulations uh, came down that uh, conventional coal was going to be, or emissions from conventional coal rather, were going to uh, not be allowed beyond mm-hmm. the year 2020, December 2029, mm-hmm. which tied in with our retirement dates for the most part. However, um, you know, it did, it did mean that a couple of our units were not going to be able to run as, as long as we thought they were. Right. The move to the gas has accelerated. Uh, the addition of renewables to reduce emissions is is ongoing. But now the uh, the added dimension of uh, of a carbon price on on those f- uh, elements of fossil energy that we continue to need to uh, power our generation fleet uh, are adding now a financial burden and uh, for our customers. And as we look to the future, that burden is only going to grow. Mm-hmm. We uh, and we understand the desire to move to a, a, a lower emitting electrical sector um, emissions profile. Uh, as you begin to electrify, you want to have your electricity grid mm-hmm. uh, relatively clean. But that means that the speed at which this is is needed now. Uh, is going to require significant support, and I and I think this is where you know we would look to the federal government to um, help those provinces where there is a large amount of fossil that has to be taken out of the fleet if you truly want to clean up the electricity grid, and help support that uh, transition. Uh, so the maritime provinces, mm-hmm. uh, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Alberta, yep. Saskatchewan, and a couple other places in Ontario, even where there is gas. Uh, will need assistance in this area, and I and I, you know, I would suggest that would be a a very appropriate way to help clean up the electricity grid and um, help move the dial on this as we as we get ready for electrifying other sectors of the economy. Mm-hmm. I thought that the conversation we had yesterday uh, about the timing of technology was interesting. Um, one of one of the one of the folks that that was uh, was speaking. Um, uh, spoke about, you know, 2050 uh, is something that he's he was very optimistic about because we'll have the chance to, to bring in new technologies. 2030, because it's 96 months away, mm-hmm. is more of a challenge because the technologies are still working themselves out. Um, what, like, what are the, what are the, what are the potential um, technologies that you would see in that 2035 time frame? 2030, 2035, because you know, as some people have said on the on the podcast previously, if you got a, you know, a twenty thirty plan, if if you haven't actually started working on a, a, the project today, um, you're you're going to be hard pressed to bring it online in eight years time. So, what are the, 
Yeah, and you know, we've talked about we talked about you know hydrogen, and we talked about small modular reactors with folks in the past, but none of those are immediate. Um, that, I, I guess that's the real big yeah. challenge right now. Is twenty fifty is 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 uh, gives us time to develop those new technologies, but what could twenty thirty or twenty thirty five look like? Practical reality of of having real options available to us today to to convert uh, several thousand megawatts of, of generation that's on coal or natural gas are are very limited. Yeah. They, uh, as you say, I mean, hydrogen development is is really just beginning. R and D into various uh, types of hydrogen, whether it's gray, whether it's blue, whether it's green, uh, have potential, but the economics are are far from clear yet. Uh, we are working hard with our partners on small modular reactor um, development opportunities, and we are going to be moving that uh, file down a path, and that has potential in the in the 2030s and beyond for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think is a as a going to going to become a, a, a real option at some point in the near future. But not but not before 2030 because of the timing, right? Yeah, the the uh, getting the first one to the grid by the late 2029, 2030 in Ontario, and and having uh, Saskatchewan uh, follow is uh, is the current plan that we're on. Right. Um, but a lot of work has to be done to uh, to uh, make sure that uh, the economics are proven, the technology and constructability of that uh, uh, type of uh, facility can be built. Um, and uh, but we're you know again we're working hard on that one because I think it provides um, uh, a real and practical zero emitting uh, mm-hmm. source of electricity for the longer term uh, for Saskatchewan. Uh, the other one is is Intertice and uh, and flowing electricity from those provinces that are rich in hydro like British Columbia mm-hmm. or Manitoba uh, into uh, provinces like uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan. Uh, again. Uh, going to require regional cooperation and I would suggest uh, should also um, attract a fair amount of government uh, support in that area if the desire uh, federally is to make sure that we can clean up this electricity sector as a country. So the other options, uh, you know, options for additional hydro development in both Alberta and Saskatchewan are somewhat limited. And um, of course, as we as we get off fossil energy, we have to replace the base load uh, requirements in both of these provinces. And we can add wind and solar, but the battery technology is not yet of age. So it's not a real option at scale today. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are all beginning to put in battery storage um, um, facilities and uh, are gonna roll that into the grid, but it's very, very expensive. And uh, it, uh, you know, it's, it's something that is just in the early stages of development here. So battery technology at scale to replace, uh, mm. together with wind and solar, to replace baseload gas or coal is still uh, very difficult and, uh, and extremely expensive. So, you know, th- there is not a real option uh, that is at the same economic uh, price point mm-hmm. that um, um, coal and gas is today. And that's the challenge. How far, how fast... Uh, do you put uh, these alternatives in and risk rates in, in, in those provinces that have to move the dial, uh, risk those rates going up so high that it affects other parts of the economy? Yeah. Because right. Right. 
our our job is to is to make sure we we have reliable sources of electricity, but do it uh, in an affordable way mm-hmm. and in a way that doesn't uh, you know present an, an impediment to the rest of the economy in uh, in our province for sure. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned interties uh, uh, and and in a role that that governments would have to play. Um, that's that's not so far fetched if you look at what is in the uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, infrastructure bill, where where they're putting pretty significant dollars into into major major transmission infrastructure across the states for their plan to 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 reduce their GHG emissions. Yeah, when you look at the United States program uh, for building out inner ties and and a macro grid across the U.S., uh, you. you, you it, it, it totally makes sense because as as we move to more green energy, more mm-hmm. more wind and solar on the grid, for example, uh, backed up with uh, nuclear in a lot of cases in the U.S. and, and uh, additional amounts of hydro, plus imports from Canada, mm-hmm. um, you you begin to see that there there is a strengthening uh, of of the entire grid that's that's needed. I often tell people. We can't store the electrons that we produce in our facilities in North America in a warehouse. Uh, we use it in the same instant of time, mm-hmm. and it's important that we have a strong grid so that we can withstand uh, extreme weather events, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's been several in the past couple of years that yeah. we could all point to. But when parts of the grid go down in one area, to have a strong interconnection so that you can uh, make sure you have backup into your area is uh, is going to be vitally important and even more important in a future world where uh, you have large amounts of intermittent sources like wind and solar mm-hmm. um, and uh, backed up with strong inner ties uh, will will just strengthen the entire network uh, across North America. All right. Mike, um, I, I know you're uh, you know you're, you're you're looking at, at winding down your your time at, at Sask Power. Uh, I wonder, you know, as you as you look back, were there uh, any uh, any significant mentors um, that that you had that uh, that were important to you as you were uh, as as your career was progressing at, at Sask Power? You know, when when I look back uh, at my at my career, going into the power station, um, uh, working with some extremely smart people in uh, in the engineering and maintenance departments. Um, you know, a couple, well, a few names come to mind. Of course, uh, my uh, immediate uh, supervisor at the time, Ron Jickling, was uh, superintendent of maintenance at the plant. The plant manager, Barry McClellan. Uh, the plant manager at the Coronac plant was uh, Garner Mitchell. Mm-hmm. Um, vice president uh, in the early 90s was uh, a fellow by the name of Rick Patrick, who's now retired. But I ended up working uh, uh, for Rick Patrick in Regina a few years later. And uh, very insightful man and, and uh, really had a, the long vision of, of the company and the industry yep. um, in mind and uh, I learned a lot from, from him. Um, when I took the detour into finance, uh, the, the CFO of the day, Bill Jones, the president of the day, John Wright, mm-hmm. and sure. uh, moved, yeah. uh, you know, when, when I got hired into um, uh, transmission and distribution, Pat Uzwa was the president and uh, learned a lot from Pat. Uh, during her time and you know there's so many people in so many departments that you work with in a large company it's if I if I started naming 
all the people I'd, I'd, I'd miss half of them. So mm-hmm. uh, there, there's just so many talented people that uh, have helped me and helped me understand the business and, and helped me grow. And uh, I, I'm very thankful for that. You know, I just, I just, I recalled something earlier. My first contact actually with CEA mm-hmm. was back in 1993. I was, I was managing a, a, a project in the power station. We were actually removing asbestos from an operating boiler, okay. 150 megawatt boiler. And I was asked to put together a presentation for the generation committee of CEA. Mm-hmm. And I ended up flying to Sydney, uh, Nova Scotia and uh, presented to, uh, to the CEA at the time. So that's where my, my first exposure to CEA was. And, you know, as I look back, uh, that was in the days where we didn't have PowerPoints, but remember the old uh, plastic sheets and you yep. do your presentation yep. and you photocopy them? Acetates, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. you put it on the overhead projector. Yep. And <laughs> yep. Yep. That was my first presentation to CEA. And then it was, you know, 14 years later that I ended up... Uh, uh, really getting involved when I uh, uh, stepped into the T&D role and then, then yep. joined the Transmission Council and Distribution Council. And I learned so much from, from all the people across the country as well mm-hmm. over that time. Mm-hmm. Tremendous uh, amount of information. Tremendous team. Um, all You know, we're all part of a, a utility infrastructure family and uh, we all have very, very similar concerns and, and, and issues as utilities across the country. And I think that's what brings this, uh, this industry and brings CEA together. Uh, we have a common purpose. We provide a, uh, I call it a product. Um, now it's more than a product. It's a, it's a service offering as well mm-hmm. to customers across the country. Right. And uh, electricity is needed and drives everything that we do in our lives today. Yeah. And it's such a valuable valuable commodity and uh, we have great people that are dedicated and uh, spend their careers working in uh, companies across Canada um, to make sure the the lights stay on everywhere and our customers are looked after mm-hmm. wow. so so what's what's next uh, for 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 you Mike is it uh, are you gonna go off and, and build some more houses with habitat habitat for humanity or What's the uh, what's the what's the what's the plan in terms of after after SAS Power? Well, in the near term, my wife Maureen and I plan to uh, just enjoy some time together. Uh, we uh, we're going to do the usual bit of travel. Uh, mm-hmm. I think we just want to take some time to reflect on our our careers and uh, spend some time at uh, our our cottage at the lake mm. and just do the things that you would normally do in retirement. I. I, I do have a sense that I'm going to be involved in the industry f- in the next while, but I'm not committing to anything at this point in time. And uh, if, that, if an opportunity comes along, I will, um, I will certainly have a look at it. But I'm not, uh, I'm not pursuing anything or stepping any, into anything right away. I just want to take some time and uh, enjoy that with my wife. Gotcha. And then, and then uh, you know, one of the things that I also ask folks is if there's a book that either they're currently reading or they've recently read that they would recommend to uh, to the listener on the podcast. So uh, for you, Mike, what would that book be? You know, most of my life I've read nonfiction books. I've, I've, I've really uh, rarely stepped into uh, 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 the fiction world, but uh, the book I, I just bought last week was uh, Chris Hatfield's new book, his fictional book called oh, uh, The yeah. Apollo Murders. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
I think I got that right. But uh, and I've just I've just started it. So I, mm-hmm. I but I'm looking forward to reading it. I I've I've read his other three books and and uh, I've always been interested in uh, space travel. And uh, as a kid, being an astronaut was uh, the mm-hmm. the thing I was going to mm-hmm. be. But yeah, uh, of course that didn't happen. Uh, but um, no, I'm looking forward to reading that book and 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 getting into some more fiction stuff uh, going forward. Great. All right. So we'll add Chris Hatfield's book to our uh, to our uh, to our reading list uh, for the Flux Capacitor. Mike, thanks for, for thanks for taking the time to sit down. I really, really appreciate you being the first uh, the first face to face podcast in almost two years. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Francis. And I just want to say thank you to you and the entire CEA team for all that you do. You've uh, you've got a really solid team and a and a great organization, and you're supporting the industry in such a big way um, and we look forward to seeing much more of CEA in the future. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Mike. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor. Tune in for future podcasts in the Net Zero 2050 series, which will continue given the evolving targets for the economy as a whole and for the electricity sector. Future podcasts will include industry, government, and stakeholder guests discussing the implications of and the pathways to the net zero future. And as always, let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.